Hi, this is Sarah. If you like this episode of Let's Talk About Sects, you can listen to my audiobook, Do As I Say, How Cults Control, Why We Join Them, and What They Teach Us About Bullying, Abuse, and Coercion. The audiobook will be available on Audible, Apple Books, Google, and Kobo from the 28th of June. A link is in the show notes. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm pleased to welcome Audio Technica back as presenting partner for season four of Let's Talk About Sects. Their support has meant a lot, and their equipment is a huge reason why the show sounds great. Anything less than great sounding today is due to me being a bit blocked up, and in my closet again, missing my studio booking as I isolate and wait for my latest COVID test results. Back to Audio-Technica though, be sure to check out their creator pack if you're looking at content creation yourself. And if you're not a producer, get onto their home audio setups to get your home entertainment on point. Find out more at audio-technica.com.au. Lindy Jacob was born into the exclusive Brethren in Auckland, New Zealand, and was told there was no longer a place for her there when she was 20. Now, more than a decade later, she's ready to share her story with the public. Welcome to Let's Talk About Sects, a podcast about cults around the world. I'm your host, Sarah Steele. Before we continue, a content warning. This podcast deals with issues that some people may find disturbing, related to emotional abuse and controlling behaviours. This episode also mentions child sexual abuse and suicide. Please use your discretion as to whether this will be suitable for you and those around you who may be listening too. This is the second part of a two-part episode about the exclusive Brethren. If you haven't listened to the first part, I'd recommend you go back and do so now. In 2012, the exclusive Brethren underwent a bit of a rebrand and became the Plymouth Brethren Christian Church. Journalist and author of the book Behind the Exclusive Brethren, Michael Bachelard, told me a bit about the background to this change. This is a Sydney-based organisation, but it is global. Uh, And in the UK, the Charities Commission decided to rule them out from having charitable status for one of their uh, local meeting halls. uh, And that really threatened their whole, I 
guess, charitable business model whereby uh, a huge amount of money is uh, is uh, kind of passed through from businesses into into charitable giving and, and so on, all of which benefits themselves. Um, so that was they were turned down by the Charities Commission, ran a massive public relations and political campaign to try and get that decision overturned. And partly as a result of that, and partly as a result, I think, of the bad publicity that surrounded them, uh, they set up uh, what they call the Rapid Relief Team, which is a um, it's a, a kind of a, it's a charity that goes out uh, around trouble spots, like for example, in Australia, bushfires, uh, floods, that kind of thing, and hands out sandwiches and uh, and water, and and uh, I, I guess reaps uh, praise and and what have you from ordinary Australians who don't know who they are and what their background is. I've got no reason to think that they don't do genuinely good work, but they are certainly assiduous in publishing that, putting it, uh, putting out press releases. They've got a, a pub- public relations team that uh, that pumps out good news stories about the rapid relief team, and that really, I think, is part of that uh, another major shift, which is to try at least to give the patina of social um, responsibility to to the, to the group, so that if they were to be threatened again. Uh, with uh, with uh, for the, over their charitable status or or with substantial media coverage that they could then, as they do, point to this as as being you know something that they do that's that's of broad benefit to the community. Bevan Hurley wrote for Stuff New Zealand in August 2020 about Rapid Relief Team. Quote. A global organisation, its New Zealand branch received nine hundred and eight thousand dollars in donations last year. That's dwarfed by the tens of millions in annual donations to the National Assistance Fund, one of the richest charities in New Zealand whose trustees are Brethren Elders, end quote. Since 2010, that charity has received 353 million New Zealand dollars in donations. Of its purpose, it says, We contribute to the well-being of New Zealand society by supporting the provision of educational facilities operated on principles consistent with the Christian faith, relief for persons in poverty or necessitous circumstances, facilities and services for the care of the elderly, facilities for Christian worship, medical care and emergency response, services to assist legal compliance by charities and the effective use of charitable resources. I understand that all of these provisions are only for those within the exclusive brethren. There is some public benefit to keeping members free from having to draw on social safety nets, I suppose. As former member Lindy Jacob told me, they're not doing anything unlawful. Yes, it raises a lot of interesting ethical questions to my view around what, yeah, what, but a lot of the stuff is no one wants to touch it because it's too, when I say no one wants to touch it, it's, it's very complex to try and figure out what should, how do you define a charity, how do you define benefit to the public, it's, these are things that are very difficult to legally measure and, and I don't necessarily think the Brethren are doing anything Illegal, I don't think. I just think that they're very clever at um, using their quite unique religious and relational setup um, to completely milk a legal system that was never designed for that kind of regulation and use. Bill Radicott wrote for the Winnipeg Free Press of the Exclusive Brethren's Appeal of the UK Charities Commission's decision, quote, The legal fight lasted two years. As the battle played out, it became clear that not only could the Charities Commission find no public good performed by the Plymouth Brethren, 
it found plenty of bad. End quote. But in the end, the Charities Commission decided to extend the charity status on the proviso that the PBCC take reasonable steps to allow the continuation of family relationships where a family member has left the community, and also provide support to those seeking to leave, based on their extensive record of doing neither. Over this period, the organisation was working closely with expensive PR firms, and the exclusive Brethren name many used to refer to them may have been seen as an issue in terms of public perception around how they could be providing any public benefit as such an exclusivist group. A new website was launched under the name of the Plymouth Brethren Christian Church, and as Michael mentioned, this is the period in which the Rapid Relief Team was launched too. Michael Bachelard's book contains a lot about the charity side of the organisation, and in researching the situation in Australia, he found it difficult to get to the bottom of what's really going on. They have a massive network of charities, um, which unfortunately, because in Australia the Charities Commission uh, is a is a pretty um, poor excuse for a regulator. It doesn't give out a lot of information. It's very hard to trace uh, exactly what's going on uh, in in and through these charities. But but there's one, for example, called the Hughes Travel Trust, which uh, through which we understand they fund all their quote unquote religious travel. Um, it's entirely tax free. Uh, there are other entities which are. Completely opaque because the Charities Commission in Australia regards them as uh, as religious charities, so they don't have to report anything. And there are some. There's one I discovered recently that does report. Uh, it has hundreds of millions of dollars of incomings and outgoings, uh, and absolutely no transparency about what what that money is doing. So. Uh, yes, it, it's it's one thing to remember about the exclusive brethren is that money is no object. It's it's a, a monumentally wealthy organisation, uh, and the way that money is dealt with through charitable enterprises is pretty opaque. Lindy told me her impressions of the Rapid Relief team. It's a massive global, deliberate, strategic charitable arm that the brethren have developed. Um, it's. It's probably one of the things that former members find the most difficult to stomach at the moment. We find it very hard because it's incredibly slick PR, um, beautiful branding. It's a purely charitable arm that um, goes to not only to crises like earthquakes and fires in Australia, but they um, they turn up at public events like um, I went to a mud run here in Wellington and they were an obscure mud run so they roll out a branded tent red marquees they've all got uniforms and caps they hand out branded water bottles um, and free sausages most of all that's the most the main thing they do is free water bottles and sausages they've also got big time into food boxes this year with covid they're all branded rrt um there's not there's not wording around plymouth brethren christian church on the rrt stuff but it's pretty easy if you google to find that they're connected um and we and they've got a strong social media presence which is ironic again because members are not allowed social media but they're on facebook regularly posting they contact journalists and newspapers and ask to be profiled for what they're doing lindy's view is similar to michael's that this could very well be good work 
but that it's more about perception than reality. Yeah, in my view, it is 100% is, um, and even some current members that I've managed to sneak. There's a couple of people who, who will talk to me now and again, and they'll say the same thing. They'll say, oh, yeah, it's blatantly, it's a huge global rollout thing of... Um, because without that, they didn't have anything to say that they were of public benefit. Um, and it's also nicely separate enough from, you know, it's not meaning, it doesn't mean that their properties or their schools need to be involved. It's a separate deal where they can go out on their terms and, yeah, deliver food or whatever. Um, and it's only, yeah, the only people as part of RRT will be current Exclusive Brethren members. Um, yeah, I think that I personally, um, I have heard from current members that they, each town has, you know, they're all on a big strategic roster system. Each town has to contact a charity or something every week and make donations in the name of RRT. Um, so it's very organised, but yeah, like they have to attend, I think it's an event a month and put up the marquee and give out things. They also, in my view, d deliberately court relationships with trusted organisations like the police and the fire departments um, and involve them on their social media, like tagging them and, you know, looking pretty cosy with them. And, and I think the police and the fire departments and nearly all these organisations have got no idea that it's connected to the PBCC. It's tricky because if this were a genuine sign that the PBCC are moving towards engaging with society in a more open way potentially leading to families that they have broken up being encouraged to have relationships again and doing good work that is of broad public benefit, then that should of course be encouraged. But if it's a deliberate strategy to avoid scrutiny, not change in any meaningful way and not address any of the behaviours that are contributing to traumatised individuals, then it has to be taken with a grain of salt. By the way, if you want to see a 100% white male board of directors, you can check out the website of Rapid Relief Team. Lindy told me she'd seen one of the charities the RRT had donated to was a New Zealand domestic abuse charity called Shine, who had returned the donations when they were informed of the RRT's ties to the PBCC. Until 10 years ago, Brethren were strongly discouraged by their leaders from giving to charity, I, I sponsored a World Vision child when I was in there that I just picked up from um, one of the stalls in the street. And um, I was sponsoring a World Vision child and my parents and others dragged me over the coals for it and made me go and read the Great Leaders Ministry, which said, if you have excess money, you give it back to the brethren, not to these other charitable organisations. And I was made to stop giving to this World Vision sponsorship. And, and yet here we go, only a few short years later and on the one hand it's wonderful that they're giving to these things and on the other hand you cannot help but wonder at the sudden about turn and then you know the whole saying charity begins at home I'm sitting here going if you're so compassionate because underneath their branding it says something about compassion and this kind of thing compassion and community and you just think if you really cared about compassion you would let me have a cup of tea with my nana you know, you, you would let my child meet his grandparents. You would respond when I send a card telling you that your second grandchild is going to be born. Lindy says that the line that the brethren like to use around this kind of criticism is that it's not the church preventing members from seeing their relatives, it's individuals acting according to their own conscience in these matters. I do wonder whose conscience tells them not to meet their own grandchild without some amount of influence. 
a lot of the time former members are quite horrified to see some of what they're doing because it's really an oxymoron with what we're experiencing you know like just recently someone had posted a screenshot of um an advert from RRT I think it was in Australia giving out Christmas food boxes and on the advertising for it it said bringing in big letters bringing families together for Christmas and for people like us it's just utterly sickening and pretty painful and triggering actually. asked Lindy what she could tell me about the organisational structure of the Exclusive Brethren from when she was involved. Um, so each country that the Brethren are in have got, you know, a key representative um, or head honcho or whatever you want to call them, call them and they're in close, close contact with Bruce Hales. Um, in Auckland, before I left, I worked for a couple of years with the um, relatives of mine who were the, the key guys in Auckland and they were definitely in very regular contact with him and that was both for business advice as well as church matters as well as a young person wanting permission to marry someone or you know relaying quite mundane things back to him that he would have input into and control over. So in terms of structure of the organisation that's how it works it's not there's not anyone with a formal title or name other than Bruce Hales so he has various names like Man of God, Elect Vessel. Um, they do call him the King and the CEO more latterly, apparently. A whole bunch of recent leavers have confirmed that to me, but it wasn't known when I was in there. So aside from him, they, they don't even use language of elders or church. Since the rebrand, PBCC materials have taken to using the term church much more. I've heard of elders being referred to as priestlies but such roles are not officially remunerated. So no one would be in a paid role. Um, however, there is financial benefits. Like, um, yeah, everybody, each town and city um, collects money every week at their gatherings. And, um, and then they have special collections at times for various things as well. And giving towards the brethren and these brethren funds is, strongly encouraged um, and monitored as well. And then um, donations are made from those accounts to Bruce Hales directly as well as to other leading brothers, they're called. Um, And historically there has been controversy over this because of large amounts of cash being given to people that they're then carrying over borders and not necessarily declaring the tax and all that kind of thing. So it has come under fire before. Um, But I'm not necessarily saying they're doing anything illegal with it, but that there is definitely a lot of money given to Bruce Hales and to other leaders. It's just not on a salary or wage basis. In terms of the Brethren Funds Lindy mentioned, Michael Bachelard writes of a particular one in his book called The Fighting Fund which is specifically to pay for custody battles on behalf of parents who are still in the Brethren, to keep access to children away from those who are out. 
He quoted former member Alison Alderton as saying, We knew what the fighting fund was for, and we thought it was pleasing to the Lord to get these children out of the hands of wicked parents. Lindy says it may be for other court cases as well, and for his investigations, Michael Bachelard has been sued for defamation by the Plymouth Brethren Christian Church, as have others. Then I'm sure it wouldn't be legally called the fighting fund, um, but that's what it's known. It's known that that's what it's for, and a lot of the Brethren would not have any idea of what those court cases are for, but there's a strong sense of trust in the hierarchy that it's, it's their job to handle that. And, and that they'll do it and that the lay people don't need to know the ins and outs of what thousands and thousands of dollars are being spent on. Members are fine with using secular lawyers, doctors and other professionals who require a university education to perform their jobs. And they're quite comfortable with using that kind of thing. Um, well, when I say that, you know, there are some religious organisations that, for example, are anti-vaccination or you know, we're just going to pray for healing. They're, they're not down that. They're not down that end at all. Um, yeah, they are happy to use medical facilities. Yeah, a bit more concerned about using psychologists and counsellors, and that sort of thing. But in terms of physical health, they're happy to use outsiders um, for that. Yeah. Exclusive brethren don't believe that they are the only ones going to heaven, but more that they are the saints who will have a special place when they get there. Their view is that any true believer in God will be saved, and they seem to feel much more strongly that those who were once in the Brethren but left, or were ousted, will not be. At a 2005 Sydney meeting, Bruce Hale said, You go out of fellowship and say you're saved, it means absolutely nothing. Go on in lawlessness and go out of fellowship and say now you're free, that's a complete and utter disposal of the blood of Jesus. Your eternal salvation is totally in question, totally and absolutely in question if you say that you're going to be free by going out of fellowship. There's this distinct tear in the brethren with how they view outsiders. There's, there's outsiders, which they call worldlies, who are um, not viewed as much of a threat, to be honest, most of the time. But then if you're a former member, you're much more of a threat. And then they have a third tier um, which they call opposers, which has kind of a capital O, opposers, and that's any former member who speaks up about them, like I have become an opposer, um, and we are viewed as the devil incarnate. Bevan Hurley wrote for Stuff New Zealand that, quote, Hale said it would be better for those who were in contact with opposers to drink rat poison or arsenic, end quote. A spokesperson for the PBCC told the journalist, It is up to individual families as to how they manage and respond to these situations. I will say very strongly that the church will always support its own members and the church would never stand in the way of families communicating with each other. Michael Bachelard reported for Fairfax that, quote, 
In 2003, the Brethren first excommunicated and then reinstated a man to the church despite overwhelming evidence that he had sexually abused two young girls who were living with him and attending the school where he was a trustee. The Brethren ignored the girls' letters, direct to Mr Hales, in which they begged him not to bring their abuser back. The man was later convicted and jailed for offences including sexual intercourse with a child under 10, end quote. In that case, up until the conviction, amongst their community, the girls were widely seen as falsely accusing the man, and they and their mother were ostracised and further victimised until it became accepted that they had been wronged. Bevan Hurley reported for Stuff New Zealand in April 2016 on a study showing 18 out of 44 New Zealand participants claimed to have been sexually abused as children in the exclusive brethren. The journalist also reported that researcher Jill Mitten said her study had been cut short when the university funding it was faced with legal threats from the exclusive brethren. The brethren claim that Jill Mitten, who was born into the group but left in 1960, has a vendetta against them and that her studies constitute a witch hunt. Bevan Hurley wrote, After high-profile sex abuse cases against senior brethren members in 2009, the church promised to introduce a new code of care for complainants. Requests this month for a copy of the code of care or any information about how the brethren treats alleged victims of sexual abuse were refused. End quote. In the Australian context, a national redress scheme was launched in 2018 in response to the Royal Commission into Institutional Responses to Child Sexual Abuse in order to hold Australian institutions accountable for historical cases of child sexual abuse. Applications for help and redress can be made any time before the 30th of June 2027. The Plymouth Brethren Christian Church is not listed amongst the institutions that have joined the scheme, and it seems that it hasn't been named by any applicants and was not named in the Royal Commission itself. The main issue here is, of course, like with many groups that consider themselves separate from mainstream society, how they deal with incidents of this kind when they do happen. Michael Bachelard wrote in his book, In Brethren Theology, the Assembly is the final court and there is a strong taboo against reporting fellow sect members to the police. Bill Redekop wrote about the relatively new Stonewall Brethren community in the Canadian province of Manitoba for the Winnipeg Free Press in 2014. He quoted Stonewall Mayor Ross Thompson as saying, They're an asset to the community, and that the local Brethren businesses, which numbered around 20, contributed about $800,000 to the town per year in tax revenue. In neighbouring woodlands, Reeve Don Walsh said that the businesses were good for the economy and hired locals and that the Brethren made good neighbours. The question isn't whether these are good people or not. As in many high-demand groups, I'm certain there are many wonderful people involved. It's the control over their lives that is the issue. There are many sociologists who view this group and others suggested to be cults as merely people who have a different way of life, and who are we to judge? And sure, Across cultures, we should all be cautious about judging the traditions and practices of other societies. But to my mind, it's incredible that the country I live in can legally recognise the human rights of women as being equal to men, yet have no issue with a group that raises their children from birth to believe that a woman's purpose is keeping house and raising children, 
and she should never be allowed in a position of authority over a man. I asked Lindy whether she felt there was anything dangerous about the way the organisation operates. Yes, I think that they are definitely dangerous psychologically, mentally, spiritually and emotionally. Um, I think that they, yeah, have got far too huge an amount of control um, enforced by separation over individuals' lives and so that when individuals want to get help, um, they're too afraid to or they don't know where to go to. When I left, no one was allowed to use outside psychologists and counsellors. Um, so, uh, and I've really struggled with that. I saw a whole raft of things like people with marriage problems, eating disorders, severe alcoholism, um, all kinds of mental conditions, and um, professional help was not allowed. So that really upset me, and I struggled with that a lot. I hear of late that they are using psychologists and counsellors, but, um, you know, one lady only a month or so ago was telling me, not from New Zealand, but she was telling me that she was having problems with herself and her family, and so she was told by an accessibility elder to go to a certain psychologist, and this psychologist said to her, please sign here, um, all of the reports from our meetings are going to Sydney, um, to the leaders there, and she questioned this and was told it's what... You know, all the brethren that come and see me do. Lindy has also heard of people being sent to rehabilitation centres for alcoholism, which does sound like a positive development, considering that it seems to be a pretty prevalent problem for members. I think the lifestyle is very stressful and very busy, and again, a lot of anecdotal evidence to, um, you know, someone recently said to me, they asked an elder, why is there so, why are there so many alcoholics and people on depressant medication here, antidepressants, and that the elder said it's the only way we can cope with how busy with with our lives. Um, and that was sort of seen as a, not even as a problem, it was, well, that's just what we need to do to get by. Of course, there are many people across the Western world on antidepressants as well and I'm unaware of any studies to show if this is proportionally higher within the Brethren. Michael Bachelard told me what had first piqued his interest and led to his extensive writings about the exclusive Brethren. Well, my interest began in 2006 when they started really coming to the attention of Australians for getting involved in, in politics. And it really began, I suppose, in the um, in New Zealand, where the then Prime Minister, Helen, Helen Clark, was somebody that, that the exclusive brethren didn't like at all. And they put uh, private detectives on to tail her to try and confirm rumours that she and or her husband were in fact gay and that this was a marriage of kind of convenience or, or something um, and the yes it, that was revealed in the in the New Zealand press to some scandal uh, and I was asked as a, a reporter in Victoria Australia um, where there was a, a state election coming up soon afterwards whether or not they were intending to have any play any role or, or play any part in the Australia, in the Victorian election uh, and I found out pretty quickly that they were 
Um, and, and so it really did begin as a journalistic exercise. And um, as soon as I published that first story, I got calls from quite a, quite a number of former members saying, you know, you don't know the half of it. You really should follow this up more about the human kind of toll of, uh, of this organisation and, uh, and how entrenched they are in, in politics uh, in some ways or how, how, how much they lobby politicians. It seemed like it had a story with a lot of different elements to it and, and I stuck to it. Members of the exclusive Brethren don't vote, even though in Australia voting is compulsory, so I'm not sure how they get around that here. It's interesting that for a group that refrains from voting, it could be seen as perfectly okay to influence politics with money instead. Well, they went through a real phase uh, starting in 2004 and probably ending in around 2008, I suppose, where they, where they spent a fair bit of money and attention and time uh, lobbying politicians, sort of uh, trying not to be identified as themselves, but, but in fact being quite active um, and that's, uh, I think that's retreated to some extent partly because the public exposure they got for that uh, proved very unpleasant for them. Uh, but they don't vote. Uh, they don't vote. They say that politics is of the world, that they call it the world government. Um, they, uh, th- that's not their sphere, they say. Uh, they respect, they say, the work of politicians, but they try not to interfere in it or, or get involved in any way, including by voting. But that's just really belied by the fact that they have had quite extensive uh, contact with politicians, lobbying politicians uh, behind closed doors, helping out with election campaigns, as they did in in Australia in 2004, funding uh, electoral ads um, for politicians. They ran a full-page ad in the New York Times on behalf of George Bush in the 2004 election and so on. So they're very, very keen on those kind of conservative political causes. In 2006, then Prime Minister of Australia John Howard told ABC Radio's Connor Duffy, quote, I've said generally of migrants who come to this country, no matter where they come from, they have to integrate, and that means speaking English as quickly as possible, it means embracing Australian values, and it also means making sure that no matter what the culture of the country from which they came might have been, Australia requires women to be treated fairly and decently and in the same fashion as men. And if any migrants coming to this country have a different view, they better get rid of that view pretty quickly. John Howard was quite well known for bringing up the unequal treatment of women by some Muslims, whereas he didn't seem too bothered when it came to all of the English-speaking white Australian exclusive brethren. In 2007, he and his treasurer, Peter Costello, met with Bruce Hales and senior leaders of the Exclusive Brethren in Canberra. ABC reporter Peter Donald said in a report for Radio National that Exclusive Brethren members, quote, spent hundreds of thousands of dollars on attack campaigns against the Greens in state elections in Australia and New Zealand. Its members have bankrolled pro-conservative ads in the US and Canada. One member's former company spent $370,000 on pro-John Howard ads at the last election, end quote. Former Australian Prime Minister Kevin Rudd said at the time when he was the leader of the opposition, I believe this is an extremist cult and sect. I also believe that it breaks up families. I am deeply concerned about their impact on communities across Australia. Former Greens Senator Bob Brown said, This is a sect which forbids its kids from eating or drinking with other kids. 
This is a sect which forbids thousands of its youngsters, all of them, from going to university. It's a sect which does not allow women to be in the workplace if they're in a superior position to men. And in fact, after marriage, it doesn't allow women into the workplace at all. I asked Michael Bachelard if he had any idea of whether the organisation remained active in their political lobbying today. After they got all that exposure, <laughs> they did retreat somewhat, but I, I, I've got strong reason to believe that they're still very active. Uh, they just do it even more, uh, as they would describe it, underneath under the radar than they used to. Uh, it's, it's very much a secretive kind of operation now. Lindy had some thoughts about this. Here's an example of how I think the Brethren could work. I'm not, not, not saying they do, but I understand in New Zealand and Australia you, um, political parties don't have to um, make it open donations under a certain amount that they get. Um, with a group like the Exclusive Brethren, I am not exaggerating when I say that if the leader said, I want every individual of you to go out there and donate $20,000, Tomorrow, people would do it, hundreds and hundreds of them. And so they would all be able to be giving to political parties without any of it ever being held to account. Whereas what they did wrong in the 2000s was they created organisations that did give bulk amounts that then had to become public. In June 2016, after documents were tabled at a New South Wales Independent Commission Against Corruption inquiry into Liberal Party funding, Michael Bachelard reported that dozens of exclusive Brethren members donated more than $67,000 to the Liberal Party on the same day in December 2010. There were 62 separate donations of under $1,500 each. A quick reminder for our international listeners that in Australia, the Liberal Party is our major Conservative Party which can make things a bit confusing if you're on Tinder. The Sydney Morning Herald's Eric Bagshaw reported in July 2016 that then-Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull, quote, said he had no criticisms or complaints to make of the controversial Brethren and was happy for the extremist Christian sect to continue donating to the Liberal Party. It's worth noting, as many Australians are aware, that at the time of recording there is no federal Australian equivalent of New South Wales's Independent Commission Against Corruption, or ICAC, to perform such an inquiry on a national level, and that the current model proposed by the Liberal National Coalition was described as a sham by Director of the Centre for Public Integrity, Geoffrey Watson. A Brethren spokesperson told the Byline Times in 2020, quote, The Plymouth Brethren Christian Church is a place of love and worship, not of business and politics. Our church is politically neutral and as a church we have never donated to or campaigned for political parties. If an individual church member decided to back a particular party, candidate or cause, that's a matter for them, end quote. It's an interesting line to take, considering the separation doctrine that members regard so seriously. It seems unlikely that any individual member would go out and get involved with backing a political party when they're expected not to even vote. On the FAQ of the PBCC website, there's a question, does the church donate money to conservative political parties? The answer is, the church itself does not and has never made donations to any political party. At times, church members have exercised their democratic right to make public statements or donations to individual politicians. This is their own matter.
The PBCC website's FAQ page says under the question, are there specific rules that the PBCC must follow? Quote, There are no specific rules. Brethren universally maintain beliefs and a lifestyle that is based on the Holy Scriptures, and we are genuine in our endeavours to secure a sustainable structure of family life for the enduring happiness of our members, however diverse in character, capacity and cultural diversity. Bill Radicott reported about the dozen people he interviewed for the Winnipeg Free Press. None of the ex-members I spoke to had been withdrawn from for vice or a venal sin. They were withdrawn from for questioning the doctrine, the leadership or a leader's words. They were withdrawn from because they associated with non-brethren or were caught with forbidden technology. For Lindy, she wasn't so good at holding back her questions. It's what eventually caused her to leave the exclusive brethren in 2008, when she was 20 years old. Her young child had just woken up from a nap, so you may hear a few baby noises. I think it's one of those things where there's possibly partly a, um, a, pre- a predisposition that's in my makeup to ask questions that I have an inquisitive nature. Um, then some people, it seems, are more like that than others. Um, so I, but undoubtedly, it was part of that nature that led me up because I did ask questions and I wanted to understand. I wanted to use my brain to think and ask questions and to reason. So I did. Um, and for me as well, I would call myself a spiritual person. And so wanting to have an awareness and an understanding of um I guess a really 3D perspective of life of, is, yeah, is there a God? If there is, what does that mean? How could we know what this God is like? That kind of thing was part of my leaving journey. And for me, um, I started reading just the Gospels in the Bible, the Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. And people, again, people find this quite an oxymoron, but the brethren don't actually read the Bible very much. They read Bruce Hales' literature a lot um, and and that was encouraged like when I was in there we were encouraged to read the ministry of the leaders it was called for three hours a day which I tried to do um, at, at one point and it was very difficult <laughs> you know I'd try and read half an hour in the morning and half an hour before bed and then um, half an hour at lunchtime and and quarter of an hour here and there and you know you'd try and get it done because that's that was what was encouraged and yet I don't ever recall being encouraged to read scriptures in those ways. Um, but So I started reading the Bible, and it shocked me because it was very different from the lifestyle that was being modelled and taught in front of me. You know, like classic Jesus stuff, like him eating with prostitutes and sinners. And you're like, hang on a minute, we're not allowed to do that. How dare hang on, is this person representing God or not? Um, either he's wrong or we're wrong. Um, you know, classic verses like, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. And it's like, hang on, God doesn't love the whole world. He only loves us. Um, just, yeah, there were just so many things that um, when I actually read scripture, just completely don't stack up with who the brethren have become and what you know, their highest priorities are, theologically and practically. And it just, it just, the two things are just completely different. Um, 
so for me that was a huge part of going there's something funny going on here um yeah and and the more I read the ministries of the leaders as well I just couldn't there's a lot that's very confusing in their teaching um it's sort of portrayed to you as you know if you don't understand it you're not spiritual enough um but yeah the more I tried to read it and understand it and I did the more it um especially putting it alongside scripture the more and more it was like these none of this is making sense Lindy's desire to understand resulted in her being told there was no longer any place for her in the exclusive brethren and she would have to leave I describe it as leaving the brethren as like leaping out of a plane into the pitch black like you have no idea what you're leaping into um that's what it was like for me. It might be different for people today because they've got more internet access or that kind of thing. But, yeah, for me, I didn't have relational connections outside the Brethren, and I um, went to strangers who took me in. Um, but very quickly, lots and lots of lights started going on all over the show. Um, it was bizarre. Um, you know, like I remember walking into a shop down the road from the home that I'd been living in and somebody grilling me about why I'd moved into the area and me eventually kind of confessing, well, I've, I've, left the, I've just left the exclusive brethren. And, oh, lo and behold, their mother had left that 10 years ago and, you know, it was just someone who I'd never heard of because, like I said, those people disappear and I didn't know they existed. But, yeah, there was lots and lots of connections like that. And, yeah, but leaping out of a plane into the dark, it was extremely frightening. Um... In fact, I often say, you know, I, I didn't choose to leave. I was forced to leave. I was asking questions and I was in a lot of turmoil and, I, and then I got discovered as asking questions. And eventually, because I couldn't stop asking questions and couldn't settle these doubts, I was told to leave the home, that there was no place for me there. So... That's different again, you know, people leave in different ways. Some people have thought about it for a long time and they're ready to and they make a choice to and others are forced out necessarily before they are maybe psychologically ready. Um, I don't think I was ready at all. I found it extremely traumatic to leave. The other phrase I used to describe it is, um, and this is a strong, a very strong phrase to use, so I mean it with, utmost respect for people who struggle with suicidality but it it is in many ways like a form of committing suicide while you're still alive Um, and by that I mean you have to say goodbye to everything you have known and you know that there's no chance of it ever being the same again and that both means your lifestyle and your uh, environment, your social environment, as well as the hardest thing of all, your family and your friendships. And and so, you know, for me, in the last couple of months, um, when they knew I was struggling and all of that and were putting increasing pressure on me, I was, one of the things I had to do was I was writing goodbye letters to each of my siblings, to my parents, to my grandparents, to my aunts and uncles and cousins and friends, because I was forbidden from seeing them and talking to them but I was desperate to try and communicate to them that I wasn't doing this because I was trying to be naughty or rebellious or nasty or because I hated them or 
because I was demonic or anything. I was I was just trying to ask questions that, you know, um, trying to explain to them. And, and so you're writing these goodbye letters, and you never you you don't see most of them ever again. Most of them I've never seen them again. Um, my siblings, I was allowed to hug them and say goodbye to them. Um, but I have not seen. Um, I have not seen them again, apart from one chance encounter with one sibling in a street, and, and of course my brother who's now left. And so there's no way to describe that, you know. The, the closest people have experienced it are people from in refugee-type situations, or it's, it's, it is definitely the most traumatic and extreme aspect of the exclusive breathing practices. It's very difficult to describe what that does to you. Um, it's different from death because with death you have closure. Whereas, um, you know, I know that I could walk down a street and bump into someone who is a sibling who was a 12-year-old kid when I left and is now an adult with their own children. Or, you know, it's just very messy, very traumatic. But on the positive side, it's, I used to always say as well that, that people used to say to me, you're like a kid in a lolly shop, because everything was so exciting, just so exciting, you know. I remember for the first time watching the weather being read out on the news. I'd never seen um, the news be read out on TV, and um, to see, this is going to sound so silly, but to see the person standing there in front of the map of New Zealand and to see you know, rain falling when they were describing rain being here and a weather pattern circling there. I was like, wow, look at that. That's so cool. And the people I was living with were like, um, yeah, that's the weatherman. <laughs> um, but yeah, I'd never seen that. So yeah, you've got your first movie and your first rugby game and your first orchestra and um, lots of amazing things like that. For those who leave or are asked to leave later in life, the silver linings may be more difficult to find. There is a huge variety of how people deal with the aftermath and it hugely depends on a bundle of things, as I mentioned, whether they were forcibly evicted or whether they chose to. Um, whether they left as a young adult like me, I was 20 with my life in front of me essentially whereas I know a number of people who are in their 50s or 60s who have been evicted and lost you know I was not married and I didn't own a business and all you know other things like that whereas if you're a male or a female in your 50s or 60s um, there are a lot of people in that age bracket who have left and lost spouses houses children grandchildren entire companies um, because Often other family members are shareholders and will legally fight them for control of the business. And how do they retrain, you know, as, as somebody in their 60s, how do they retrain to try and find meaningful employment um, on top of dealing with this huge psychological trauma? It's incredibly difficult. Um, yeah, there are people who come out. I think there are a high number of people who come out who uh, who have... Nearly everyone who comes out has some kind of post-traumatic stress that they are then dealing with for years or decades afterwards, and often it's undiagnosed because on the outside you look like a reasonably normal person. Um, but, 
so um, yeah, there are a lot of ex-members who live with forms of complex post-traumatic stress disorder, really. Um, but on top of that, just from the trauma that's caused from leaving, there are people who leave who have got additional trauma from their time in the prison. People have had sexual abuse or physical abuse or, yeah, who are alcoholics or who... Um, I think a high number of people leave who are LGBTQI because they... I think, you know, the Brethren is a very tightly defined box and if you don't fit it for whatever reason, you're more likely to leave. Um, and ditto with people with mental health conditions in general. They often find themselves out just simply because they couldn't fit the required box and couldn't manage the lifestyle. And so there's a lot of people who leave who on top of the trauma and difficulty of leaving um, are dealing with a myriad of other issues. So, yeah, um, one of the huge challenges about the Brethren for anybody wanting to support leavers is that the Brethren themselves have are actively involved with trying to shut down any such organisation. Um, and, you know, that's on the one hand an extreme thing to say, and can I prove it? Um, the closest thing I can say to proving that is that there have been several websites over the past decade or two that have been dedicated to supporting former members and to raising awareness and holding historical archives and all that kind of thing. And one after the other, they inevitably end up getting litigated by the current brethren for... Um, laws such as defamation or copyright when copyrighted information has been shared they, they usually manage to find something um, and they manage to shut these sites down um, which is a huge loss for the former member community because there's no longer central these centralised hubs that allow people to connect with and support each other so currently there's nothing, like there's no, the closest thing is a couple of Facebook groups which are very, very well used and active. Um, but yeah, there are people talking about it again saying, because the last one was shut down a few years ago and there are people saying, oh, we need this, we need a website, we need a trust, you know, we need, we need funds to help people who come out with nothing. Um, but currently there's nothing like it other than informal networks of support, which in some ways is one of the best things that can be given. Yeah. Anyway, you know, just relational connection with, hey, this person's in your city and they, they left years ago and they can help you. Michael Batchelor documented the legal struggles of a couple of these sites in his book. One of the longest-running, peebs.net, had an emergency button for anyone contemplating suicide or anyone requiring immediate assistance to leave. It provided a helper network of contacts across 10 countries and forums that many found hugely assisted with their psychological issues post-leaving. Peebs.net and others I've read about that used to host ex-member stories and interactions are no longer online. But it's not difficult to find stories of those who've left experiencing symptoms that could be indicative of PTSD. A former member who'd come close to suicide twice in the year after he was withdrawn from told Bill Redekop, 
It's very hard to explain to someone how traumatic it is to be treated like that. Reading through the Facebook groups that do still exist and are publicly accessible, I came across a pamphlet created by former members to help those who are considering leaving. The common theme in the quotes throughout is the kindness of those outside of the PBCC and how those inside may be surprised to know how happy those outside are to help them. As former member Craig Hoyle wrote, Young people are warned that if they leave the system, they will be used and abused by a cruel and callous society. He wrote on his blog seven years after leaving, The world is not a cold, dark place, despite what your leaders say. It will not chew you up and spit you out. Rather, if you take that leap into the unknown, there will be a great number of people waiting to help and support you in any way they can. From the Thinking of Leaving pamphlet, which you can find linked in the show notes, People often stay in because of the three Fs, fear, family and finance. But there is another F that you can choose, the priceless gift of freedom. A freedom that often comes to mind when looking at groups like this is, of course, religious freedom. Today, Lindy Jacob is a pastor at a Baptist church in Wellington and doesn't voice her story in any opposition to religion. It's an important right of choice in a progressive society, the key word being choice. I'll leave you today with Michael Bachelard's thoughts on this, as here in Australia we continue to debate the federal government's proposed religious freedom bill, one that critics say will enshrine the right to discriminate. That's a really vexed question, and I I certainly don't have any kind of uh, easy answer to it. But I I do think uh, people have a a freedom of religious belief. Um, I don't think that that extends to anything that would break the law. The, the, the other secular law. I think the secular law should always prevail over religious doctrine. Um, where that becomes, uh, I think, where I've, I've certainly noticed how the exclusive brethren make their, or the Plymouth Brethren Christian Church make their um, pleas is, uh, is to use the religious freedom argument to try to get around um, adverse publicity, to try and pretend that they are being victimised by people who who uh, expose the goings-on in their church, who try to, who try to um, uh, police, I suppose, the kind of poor behaviour um, that goes on. I've encountered complaints against me to um, the Human Rights and Equal Opportunity Commission or threatened complaints uh, because, you know, my scrutiny of them as a journalist they said was was breaching their religious freedom to, to do some of their some of these things that are ultimately against human rights. So it is a vexed question, but I do think also there is a there's a fairly clear line there. And I, I do think also that uh, you know uh, that a religion should be allowed as much freedom as it gives its own parishioners essentially to enter or leave. Uh, to form friendships, to eat and drink with whom they like, um, to marry inside or outside, uh, and and to conduct their lives in freedom. And if a, if a religion is not giving those kinds of freedoms to its own adherents, then I don't think it should be the beneficiary of the freedoms guaranteed by the state.
you can access ad-free episodes and support the production of this independent podcast via Patreon. Patreon.com slash LTASpod. Or with a one-off donation or merch purchase. Details at LTASpod.com. This episode of Let's Talk About Sects was written by me, Sarah Steele, and researched by myself and Haley Gray. Music was by Joe Gould. Thanks to Corey Green of Transducer Audio for editing. A very special thanks to Lindy Jacob for sharing her story with me, and also to Michael Bachelard, whose book Behind the Exclusive Brethren is well worth a read. Information sources are listed on the episode page at ltaspod.com. Thanks again to Audio-Technica, presenting partner for Season 4 of Let's Talk About Sects. If you're in the market for some top-quality audio equipment, be sure to head to audio-technica.com.au to check out their stuff. Their range of earphones and headphones is quite ridiculous, from true wireless to noise cancelling to professional studio, and they're known for some of the best sound around. If you've been personally affected by involvement in a cult, or would like to support those who have been, you can find support or donate to Cult Information and Family Support if you're in Australia, via cifs.org.au, and you can find resources outside of Australia with the International Cultic Studies Association via icsahome.com. If you or someone you know is in crisis or needs support right now, please call Lifeline on 13 11 14 in Australia or find your local crisis centre via the International Association for Suicide Prevention website at iasp.info. For sexual assault resources in Australia, visit 1800respect.org.au and in the USA visit rain.org. Thanks for joining me and hope to catch you again next episode.